Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to Black Women Amplified, the podcast. Your host, Monica Wisdom Tyson, brings you downloadable conversations that matter to women around the globe. We discuss all things black girl magic, amplify our voices, and transform our challenges into triumphs. Monica calls on her league of extraordinary women to push our boundaries, share their expertise, and stories of personal transformation. Welcome your host of Black Women Amplified, Monica Wisdom Tyson. Hello, Black Women Amplified. It is your girl, Monica Wisdom. How are you? Welcome to the Black Women Amplified podcast. I am so excited that you're here. Listen, those of you that come back week after week, I'm so grateful. This is not only something that I love to do, but it's a movement and a mission for us to connect as women, to talk about our shared experiences, as well as heal and delve into things that we may not talk about with other people or not know that other people are also feeling. So I really want us to come together as a community. I'm trying to figure out a way to make that happen off of the podcast, whether to start an online community or do some events where we can all come together. Still working on those ideas. I'm always trying to make this a better experience for everybody because I really think that as Black women, it's important that we come together as a sisterhood to support each other in a whole new way. I know that we have trust issues with one another, We've been hurt by one another, whether it be a parent or an aunt or a cousin or a friend at college or whatever. But there's a time where, especially in this time where there's so much going on and they're spending so much time trying to erase us, it's a time that we need to galvanize and come together and really build a foundation that is structured for, about, and around us. And as we go through these conversations in this Black Women Thrive series, I'm bringing you women who are actually doing that. And I'm inspired by them. And I really think that you will be too, because it's important that we hear from other voices outside of what the media, what television, what movies show us. That because as Black women, we have a unique experience that we share, but we're all individuals and we have different journeys. And it's good to hear and learn about each other. One, so that we don't feel alone. And two, that we open up a portal of possibilities within ourselves. Because listen, I and I tell this story all the time, and I'll say it again and again and again. Had I known about Katherine Johnson <laughs> when I was a little girl, the woman that was portrayed in the movie Hidden Figures, had I known about an astrophysicist or an astro engineer or a mathematician, all of those things of science and math, because as much as I love air travel and science fiction, I probably would have been an astrophysicist. Now, can I do it now? Sure. But do I want to? Not right now. (laughs) But the point is, is that sometimes we don't know what's possible for ourselves unless we hear it or see it and someone else. And that's why visioning and visualizing and vision boards are so important because it helps us see what's possible within our own lives. And it sparks curiosity. And with so many Black women walking away from this corporate structure that was not designed for us, 
and starting their own businesses based off of their passions and their purposes and aligning with what makes them feel good about themselves, you don't know it really until you see it. Someone might open up a restaurant, but in their heart of heart, maybe they want to open up a, um, I don't know, an art center, an art museum, an art gallery, but you've never seen a Black woman with an art gallery, right? Maybe you want to be a sculptor, but you've never seen a Black woman. So it's important that we have, as Erica Hubbard talked about extensively in her interview, as an actress, it was important for her to have a representation for us to see Black women in love so that we know that being deeply in love with someone was for us too. And so she was intentional about the movie choices that she makes. Cause she could have played any number of characters, but she wanted to stay in the rom-com lane because there were not many black women in that lane. So I say all that to say, <laughs> I have a deeper mission besides just entertaining you. I really want to open up your heart and have you understand what's possible for yourself. Because especially if you're Gen X, if you didn't go out in one of the top five careers, people thought you were weird or strange. Maybe you want to be a rock star now. Maybe you're painting, you're drawing at home, and you're like, well, maybe I'll go to the art store and buy an easel and paint and see what I can create. I don't know, whatever it is. I'm just like, go for it. Go for it. (laughs) Because you never know what's possible until you try. But today we have a very special guest. Dr. Monica Ogando. I met Dr. Ogando, I want to say about 20 years ago. I used to go to women's retreats and people that know know me, I would go, we would have them, we would gather many places around the country from New York to California. And the initial training was called the Feminine Face of God. And that was the first time I heard about the Divine Feminine. I was like, well, what is that? Because I had heard about feminism and I've never been like a girly girl. So I was like, well, hmm, I don't know if I'm a feminine girl. (laughs) People tell me that I am, but I don't feel girly. Like I don't feel the need to wear makeup or heels or any of those type of things. I'm the one who doesn't want to go to the mall. I'm the one who would rather, you know, I like intimate conversations. I like girly things. And I am a girl's girl, 100% that. I'm all about my sisterhood. But I never particularly felt Uh, Oh, let me not say feminine. I never particularly felt dainty. (laughs) I think that's because I was raised by men. You know, that was that girl that was raised by wolves. That would have been me. So anyway, when I learned about the divine feminine from the, and we're going to talk about it in this conversation that we're about to have. But when I learned about the divine feminine, I was like, okay, that's where I hang out. (laughs) I don't hang out in feminism, and we're going to talk about that. I don't hang out in femininity, but the divine feminine, that's my space. And I'm really excited to have this conversation because I've been wanting to have it so that we can understand the distinctions of how we present ourselves and our power that we have as women, particularly Black women and women of color. We have a very special power that is unique to us. And so we're going to have this conversation because I think it's a part of understanding how we do the things that we do, right? And if you feel like, oh my God, I'm out of alignment. I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know why I'm here. If you're asking yourself these questions, this is a great conversation for you because we get into detail about what has shaped us and then how we can move forward. So let me introduce to you our amazing guest. 
she has credentials out of the Wahoo. So be patient as we get through them. Listen, prepare to be inspired as we delve into the world of Dr. Monica Ogando. She is a visionary businesswoman who has skillfully merged spiritual practice into innovative business strategies, propelling her to become an award-winning CEO and two-time TEDx speaker. Through her renowned company, CEO Mastery, and the transformative Sacred Mystery School Explorations to Egypt, Dr. Agando guides others to achieve their own version of success. As a Black Latino woman, Monica has transformed her challenges into triumphs, harnessing determination while acclimating to life in America. Today, she graciously joins us to share her remarkable journey, sacred teachings, empowering us to recognize and harness the immense power we possess as Black women on this planet. So please welcome, give a warm applause to Dr. Monica Ogando. Dr. Monica Ogando, thank you so much for saying yes. I appreciate you joining this conversation. It's going to be rich and full, and we're going to talk about money, women, femininity, all the things that we love. How have you been? I'm great. I'm so honored that you asked me to be here. I'm excited about this conversation. I am too. I reached out to you because I saw you on the Instagram, <laughs> places we both don't like to be. Instagram, Instagram. <laughs> Yeah. But I was intrigued by your platform of women, wealth, and worthiness. Yes. But we've actually known each other for years. Years, years, yeah. We met in a sisterhood years ago. That's where I learned about the Divine Feminine through Betty Spruill initially. And then I met you at a women's retreat. And listen, power. <laughs> we've been going together ever since. Right? Yes. <laughs> We've been on yes. swings together ever since. And I am so excited to have this conversation because it's very, although I still keep in touch with a couple of the people, I just wanted to bring the conversation of the divine feminine to the podcast because there's a whole lot of conversations about women and femininity and the soft life and all of these things. So I really want to get clear on the different aspects. But before we get into that, listen, I know that you are a Latino, a Black Latino woman mm -hmm. who came here in, to America at a young age. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that story and how you acclimated to this new culture? Sure. Well, I was born and raised in the Dominican Republic for the first 10 years of my life. And so I grew up with a lot of those to me, were natural ways of balancing the masculine and the feminine. I didn't know how patriarchal my culture was until I got a contrast of what that looked like when I came to the uh, United States. And my mom and dad were both uh, pretty high up in government in the Dominican Republic. And with a change of power comes a change of priorities and a change of importance and all this other stuff. And they wanted to move to the United States, as most immigrants do to give their children a better life. And so when my, my father came first and he kind of like made the way for us. And then my mom came and left us in the Dominican Republic with some aunts and uncles and so forth. And then we came after that to just kind of like, okay, so everybody's here. 
And we spent the first 10 days of my life in the United States in New York, because <laughs> that's where my, my mom had one of her brothers lived in New York. And she was like, yeah, no, mm -mm, I'm not raising my children here. <laughs> <laughs> so we moved to Boston, which, you know, is far less racist than New York. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> far less, way more diverse you know <laughs> so I had to learn uh, that was kind of like the beginning of my bi-ness and what I mean by that was I didn't know that I was biracial until I came to this country my father is it was a black Dominican my mother white Dominican I didn't know that I didn't know those distinctions until I came here because this is a highly racialized country I became bilingual right because my my first language Spanish and then my next language was English I have since learned others but those were my primary ones and then like by country by cultural by coastal eventually you know I, I, I own home, homes in different places and so the conversation for me became how do I integrate this stuff not like how do I live in both worlds not how do I hopscotch into two different realities but how do I integrate them because I mean, anybody that has lived that life of code switching and parallel lives and whatever, you know how exhausting it can be energetically. Mm -hmm. And the, the whole point of having a masculine and a feminine is not either or, it's both and. That's why one of my favorite hashtags is stand for the and. <laughs> so oh, for me, that, that transition yeah. of, of being an immigrant was how do I go for my dreams? Because that's what my parents brought me here for. And at the same time, not forget the old world or where I came from, or how do I integrate that into what I already know? What does it mean to be colonized? What does it mean to be colonized in your mindset and not just in your culture? Because a lot of times this, you know, when we talk about Black Latinos, for example, when we talk about anti-Blackness, that's not an, an American thing. That's a global phenomenon. And we see the misogyny and the anti-Blackness kind of like in the water, it's just pervasive. And you really do have to become awake to yourself and to the waters you swim in in order for you to make a choice, make a selection of how you want to live your life and what you want to honor in the way you live. Now, I interviewed a woman from Belize and she calls herself a third culture kid mm -hmm. because she lives in, she's lived all over the world and, and she's here now in America, I should say, not here. Mm -hmm. But what tools did you have to build within yourself to acclimate and simply survive with all of those different aspects that you had to deal with as a child? And how does that impact you now? Well, I didn't know it at the time. I bristled at the idea. My parents made a rule in my house that we only spoke English outside of the house. In the house, we still spoke Spanish. It worked against them in a disadvantage because they were not as exposed to English speaking media or books or anything else like we were when we were going to school and we had friends and so forth. But it worked in our advantage as their children because we were able to maintain a semblance of like home and a semblance of unbeknownst to us at the time. It made you more marketable to know more languages. This idea that only speaking English is all you need is an exclusively American idea. Almost everywhere else in the world, people speak more than one language and are exposed to more than one culture. And so for me, the idea of having been, having come from the culture that I came from, having come to now the America and then make the, the best of all of that and be exposed to being a global citizen, I can totally see that third culture concept because it's, it's again, the whole conversation about integration. Mm. Some of the things that, that we had, you asked me, what are the tools that I used? One of them was keeping home home and keeping the outside, the outside. 
That was number one. Um, number two, my quick wit was very helpful because Lord have mercy. What people call bullying now, shish, woo, shish. <laughs> oh, I, you know, we're not going to throw elbows, okay? I can't afford to be in detention and have the time. And I, we're not going to do that because the butt whooping that's waiting for me at home after I get out of detention, yes. we're not going to do that. <laughs> So no, but you're going to get these words though. Yes, you're going to catch <laughs> right? these words. <laughs> you want to break my bones, I'm going to break your spirit with these words. Yes. So, um, so my quick I had the same experience. I, I could whip, I could cut you down like boom and you will cry yes. and not know why you're crying. And I'll just That's go right. on home and act like nothing happened. Because <laughs> nothing did happen. You just opened your mouth. Now yes. you better close them next time you see me, right? Yes. <laughs> Right. So quick wit was one. Another one was, and I don't know if this is exclusive to my household because my father raised us this way. Whenever I wanted to find out something, my father always sent me to the encyclopedia or to the dictionary or to, you know, just go look it up. And what that did for me was it, one, highlighted the fact that sometimes people don't have your answers. And it took adults in my life off of a pedestal a little bit. It's like everybody's trying to figure it out. Sometimes my mom or my dad would send me to go look it up because they didn't know the answer. They didn't have to give, right? Mm -hmm. But then number two, it it awakened in me a thirst for and a hunger for learning and for critical thinking and for figuring things out and for being resourceful and for how else can we do this and what else is working and, you know, that level of of curiosity and, and, and learning that allows me to see, quote unquote, unfamiliar or strange or uncertain or maybe even threatening situations and still feel safe in them because I got me. And not I got me from a place of survival and I don't have anybody else because, you know, I've got you, Monica Wisdom. I've got to hope, you know, I'm very resourceful in that way. Mm-hmm. But if, if the leveling field was completely barren and the only thing standing on it was me, I'm still good. And I think that comes from that immigrant standpoint of starting with nothing, from having to create something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. That's, that's been a huge, huge, huge advantage when you know that about yourself. That's incredible because you do have to navigate much more than, even though I have, to, as a Black woman, I have to navigate this country who doesn't like us. Mm-hmm. But you coming into the country is a whole different level. And I think a lot of people don't understand that immigrant story of some people are coming here to survive because they have to come because of what's going on in their country. And some people do come because they don't have opportunities where they are. Right. And that's a selling point for this country until recently (laughs) that people come here because opportunities do open up for them. And it's amazing that you caught that on at such a young age that you figured that out, you know, before you were even a teenager, that to yeah. learn how to navigate life so that you could win. That's amazing. Yeah. I, and I think that's an advantage that a lot of immigrant families have because you, by default, become a latchkey kid because mom and dad are busy working two, three jobs to make it. A lot of times, even if they were doctors and lawyers in another country, they don't have the licensure or the certifications or the educational credits or whatever to make that career here. So they either have to start over or they have to, in the meantime, take factory jobs, et cetera, which is what happened to my mom and dad. And so they were, you know, working two jobs and two shifts just to make ends meet. And so you're here left by yourself. To like, you're going to have to figure it out, like for real, mm-hmm. figure it out, mm-hmm. not just get creative, but like get strategic. 
And I think this conversation is so important because there are so many similarities in our stories of my generation X, our parents came out of Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. once the Civil Rights Act was passed and we be, finally became full citizens and starting off with nothing through the reconstruction period, starting off with nothing. So we mm -hmm. have similar stories, even, you know, but it's important that we share these conversations so that people understand we're more alike than different. Yes. And I remember absolutely. years ago, God gave me a vision of reconnecting the diaspora. And so it's mm. beautiful that we're having this conversation because we share a lineage of Africa and the journey from there to here. Culturally, we may be a little different because of English, Spain or wherever or America. I say I'm going to say United States because America is a big place. But yes. in having these conversations, we do get to connect ourselves and become a part of a larger story that is Blackness around the world because there is so much yeah. anti-Blackness. Yes. So I ask one, before we get into the anti-Blackness piece, because we both travel and we see mm -hmm. it, <laughs> how do you, like I said, we connect through the lineage of Africa, but you have a Latino culture. Tell me about your culture and what you do to preserve it in your new homeland. Well, I still speak Spanish with the folks that, that uh, you know, my family members and even friends that are also Latinos. And I'm also very aware that speaking Spanish doesn't mean that you're somehow more home. It, too, is another colonizer language, right? Maybe even more so than English. And so honoring that, recognizing that is part of part of how I create home for myself. I still cook Dominican dishes. I still eat Dominican dishes. I can't tell you how much I jumped up and down when I found out that in this little suburban town hidden away in the red hills of Georgia, <laughs> I found a Dominican restaurant. I was like, God loves me. <laughs> I still am his favorite child. <laughs> that was very important to me dancing I know that sometimes people people look at my like branding and the things that I talk about and they think oh she's very like by the book and very much about business and just you know miss, mm -hmm. miss go get it, boss lady she but I'm, I'm goofy as hell <laughs> and I dance a lot I sing a lot I have musical Tourette's everybody that I know once I explain to them what musical Tourette's is like oh I think I got that too I was like yeah I know it's copywritten though you can take it you know, the idea of syncretism is to bring all these disparate parts together. And I think that the, the very idea of a diaspora, if you think about what the word actually means, it's a dispersion, mm -hmm. right? People who have been dispersed all around from their original homeland. And to be honest with you, everybody is part of a diaspora. And so when when I think about specifically the Black diaspora. I think about in the remake of the miniseries Roots, mm -hmm. the one that came out recently, like in the last 10 years or something, there was a scene where, so Kunta Kinte had, you know, his daughter, Kizzy. Kizzy had her son, George. George had his children. Mm -hmm. And by the time that we get down to George's children, they then start fighting for in the Civil War. We're talking now 1860 something, right? And George's son, I forget what his name was, but he was a Civil War soldier in the Union Army, and he was doing his rounds, and he heard a Confederate white soldier 
singing or whistling a song that was taught to him as an ancient hymn from Africa by his grandmother, Kizzy. How the heck did this white cracker? Right. <laughs> right. That was my grandmother's lullabies. <laughs> right. I'm sure it was what he was thinking, right? <laughs> and you could kind of see it in his face in the in the in the movie. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think when I think about the black diaspora. It's like it's in your food, it's in your culture, it's in your music, it's in your lexicon, in what you think is vernacular, in what you think is the language, in what you think is science or art or music or theater, or it's just in it, it's imbued in it. And you think you invented something, you did not, it was handed to you. And in Africa, I think like a good mother <laughs> envelops all her, all her children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't I don't really much get offended. People talk about cultural appropriation. What else are they going to do? Right. Everything came from us. What else are they going to do? Right. <laughs> I don't get offended by it. I just say do it well. Like. <laughs> right. Yeah. And if you don't want to give credit, that's all right. Karma got your number. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just like, OK, well, if that's what you want to do. <laughs> Ain't nothing lost. Yeah, that's right. I would, too. <laughs> Yes. I just, I just don't have to. Right. And so, you know how in the Southern States people say, oh, bless your heart. Yes. But there's a little F you under there. Right. Okay. Well, a lot in, of F you. Yes. Well, in my culture, vaya con Dios is like that. Vaya con Dios means go with God. But it's like, ooh. Is that what that means? Vaya con Dios. Okay. If you like it, I love it. Mm-hmm. That is amazing. That's funny. I always say, I wish you heaven. And yeah, I right. don't. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Have the day you but, deserve, sir. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I always say, I wish you having people think, oh, that's so sweet. I'm like, it's really not. <laughs> so, and here's the other thing too that I think I learned from being an immigrant is that because I had to come up with it, I had to figure it out. Then when people impute their reality on me, it just doesn't land. Mm-hmm. Like you, you can't tell me what I can and cannot do. I just did it. Mm-hmm. And so I remember a, this is now a few years ago. I don't have in my body, in my lived experience of this particular incarnation, I don't have like super traumatic racialized stories, you know, commensurate with the level of vitriol that I have towards racism and and lack of diversity. It's like, it doesn't match, right? It's like you haven't, you haven't suffered the way that some people have suffered for you to be this mad and this, you know, indignant about it. But I do remember some years back, I was at a supermarket here in Georgia. This is where I live. And I was crossing the crosswalk towards the parking lot. And I saw this man very aggressively turn his truck. It was a white man, turn his truck towards and start following me. And we got into a tussle, verbal tussle. And he was like, I tell you what, you BB. And the BB is black. Mm. And I'm going to let you know mm. what, the, you know, you know what the other one was. Mm. I was, I had my phone in my hand and I started recording him and I was like, oh, but I wasn't offended. I was like, Ooh, let's record this. My friends are not going to believe me when they, when I tell them that somebody called me black today. <laughs> <laughs> he looked at me like, uh, that's this, that's not how I thought this was going to go. <laughs> because well you know the conversation in in a lot of latin cultures there's this anti-blackness that happens it's a running joke for it it was a line in a movie when somebody said i'm not black i'm dominican Mm -hmm. and i I beg to differ like that that's almost synonymous sir (laughs) 
have you have you met us? Right. Do you know that we do you know that we share the island with the only black island in the Caribbean? <laughs> what do you think we are? Right? It's a, it's just ca- coffee with a little milk in it. As we understand more about ourselves and each other culturally, I think this is the distinction that people get to make. There's a difference between your ethnicity and your race. Mm-hmm. And you can be black European because you were born and raised in Britain or you were born and raised in, you know, Spain or whatever the case may be. I don't know why people think that speaking Spanish and being black are somehow two mutually exclusive things because we have a lot of black people in Brazil, for example, in Brazil in, and that's in Latin America, but they speak Portuguese, right? We have a lot of black people in Haiti being, I'm not black. I'm Haitian is kind of synonymous. I'm not black. I'm Dominican. It's kind of synonymous. I'm not black, I'm Mexican. It's kind of synonymous. The only thing is that that mainstream media has painted it out to be, you can associate more of the indigenous culture with Mexicans than the black culture. But there's black culture, black Mexicans, there's black Argentinians, there's black Chileans, there's black Costa Ricans, there's black Colombians, black Panamanians. And so we're everywhere. We're everywhere, just like there are black Americans, right? Mm -hmm. But, but blackness isn't all of what America is or black United States. And just like that, blackness isn't all of what Mexico is or what all of what the Dominican Republic is, right? There's white Dominicans too. There's white Mexicans also. You see them all the time in the telenovelas. (laughs) (laughs) We have a lot of way to go in our mainstream media that relegates black people to the servants, the drivers, the chauffeurs, the poor people, the, you know, the homeless or the whatever that still happens in Latin American and Caribbean media in soap operas and TV shows and so forth. Whereas in the United States, you see a little bit more of that diversity. Not that, not that it's much better, but they do have that distinction. And it's a distinction that is because one, I think if we all focused on our Africanness, yeah, and connected that way, we would see how powerful we are, and that we are the majority, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. we they have to separate it by our other parts of us, so that we think that we're separate from one another. Yeah, but the truth of the matter is, like you talked about the food and the culture, like when you watch, I watched a, a TV show. A, I love documentaries, as you can tell. High on the Hog. Mm-hmm. And they talked mm-hmm. about the rice fields in the South. I was like, yes. wait a minute. My whole life, I thought rice came from Asia, but it came mm. over from Africa on the slave ships. Yes. And then right. it became one of the main crops in America that actually built the economy of the culture mm-hmm. besides slavery. So when mm-hmm. I learned that, I was like, wait a minute. And then I went back a little further. I'm like, I mean, I'm just thinking about food, like what's on our plate, rice mm-hmm. and beans. Beans is an all we all eat beans, black eyed peas, beans, lima beans, all the things. Yes. And all of that came from where we all came from. And so when we share those stories, it's like, oh, wait a minute. And just certain fruits and vegetables that we eat, like have been demonized, like watermelon for black Americans have been demonized. But when you go to Africa, they're like, eat it every day. It's the healthiest thing you could eat. Oh, can I can I give you my watermelon story? Mm hmm. The reason why watermelons have been demonized in the United States is because when Black farmers were systematically excluded from planting rice, tobacco, sugar, et cetera, and other commodities, they started planting watermelons, which was seen as a very lowly fruit because it takes up so much, you know, it's such a big fruit, right? It's not easily transportable and so forth. And they started making a lot of money with it. 
Right. They started to be able to buy out, buy themselves and their families out of sharecropping contracts. And so they started burning white people. Let me just say this so that people understand that it's not a general, elusive, vague they. It's white people mm-hmm. started burning down black people's farms, gardens, houses, homesteads, because they felt threatened by their economic empowerment and didn't want them to continue to thrive. Mm-hmm. The difference between Black people thriving and white people thriving is that when Black people thrive, we do not do it at the expense of someone else, and we don't need to stand on your neck in order to stand. And that is because we don't come from a hierarchy. Yes. We come from community. That's right. And in true community from the continent of Africa, Mm -hmm. there is hierarchy, but generally community means that If I eat, you eat, which is traditionally Black American. If I eat, you eat. You don't have, I have beans, you have rice. Let's eat a meal together, right? Mm -hmm. You don't Mm -hmm. have shoes. I have three pairs of shoes. Take a pair of shoes. We come from community. So we make space for everybody to do well. That is Mm -hmm. our culture. And I'm sure it goes through Latin America, it goes through the Caribbean, it goes through Asia, all of these indigenous cultures that we as Black Americans are somehow disconnected from. And I know it, it's colonization and oppression and it's all of those things, but we have got to reconnect back to the idea of community. There's enough space and wealth for everybody, Mm -hmm. but they want us to think in, in the idea of scarcity which is something I th- you probably address in your business and what you teach. Yeah, I mean, part of that is along the racial axis and part of it is also along the gender axis because there was a time when women all around, in, in just the beginning of patriarchy in general, when women were considered men's property. And that's mm-hmm. because when we started moving from matriarchal, matrilineal societies to more patriarchal societies, and there's a conversation around that. I mean, listen, we have so many sermons for other Sundays. It's not even Girl, funny. listen. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh. so when we started moving like that, it was like, oh, so when we, instead of being nomadic, mm-hmm. now we can create a homestead and now we have to eke out our sustenance from the earth. Mm-hmm. So that means that the, the most valued members of society are the ones that can exercise brute force, that can kill an animal, that can plant some stuff, that can harness a ox so that we can plow the field and so forth. So now, men, that you are physically stronger and taller, now you become the valued members of society. And women are, quote unquote, relegated to domestic and other sustenance kind of work. But then you translate that into law. So here's the thing about the masculine, and I'm making a distinction between men and women being genders and the masculine and feminine being energies. Mm-hmm. The difference between the masculine energy and the feminine energy is just like the seed versus the soil. The seed, an apple seed can only do one thing, and that's produce apples. And the only thing that you can do more valuable than produce an apple is to produce an apple tree <laughs> so you can produce more apples. But the earth, the feminine, can produce everything. Mm-hmm. Apple trees, orange trees, lemon trees, avocado trees, tomatoes, potatoes. You know, like here, enter Shirley Caesar with her song, right? <laughs> potatoes, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? 
you can produce everything. So you don't need to have a handle or to have dominion over anything because everything is available to you as the feminine. Mm-hmm. But in order for something that can only produce one thing to be able to survive in the face of the thing that can produce everything is to codify it, make it into law, make it into culture, make it into, you know, the ethos of that particular civilization. And so then it's like, oh, these careers are the ones that are valued. These skills are the ones that are prized. These ways of thinking, linear reasoning, logic, et cetera, those are the things that are valued in this society, not intuition, collaboration. That's weak, that's soft. So much so it has spread itself into the conversation, even in the way that we raise our boys and girls now. When a boy is crying, we, we say, ah, quit being a girl. Like that's an insult. So he may not know exactly what it means to transition from being a boy to being a man, but he knows not to be a girl. And we still have that in our culture. And so with the conversation around finances, with the conversation around wealth building, when we as women, we realize <laughs> not only do you deserve wealth, you are wealth. In fact, if you go back far enough in history, you were a line item in somebody else's wealth spreadsheet. And so when you understand that, then you're like, oh, all I'm doing is moving myself from being a line item in your spreadsheet of wealth to being a line item in my spreadsheet (laughs) of wealth. (laughs) So when women become empowered economically, we don't just go for the big houses and the purses and the cars and whatever, we lift the entire community because to your point about collaboration, right? Um, so we actually create legacy for our children and our sister's children and our brother's children. And we take them in and we feed them and we create companies where it's like, well, I may not have children, but my assistant does. So I need to look at childcare policies. I need to look at FMLA. I need to look at how we do work-life balance. I need to look at how we handle vacations and PTOs. I need to look at how we tax things. And so the conversation around the feminine energy of wealth is how do we create a world that works for everyone and not just people who look like me or not just people who agree with me? So from your perspective as a businesswoman, because you're a woman who has created your own economy, Mm -hmm. I remember you talking about how you turned your job into your client. (laughs) I love that story. Right. (laughs) How do we as women build a wealth consciousness, not just enough money to pay the bills, but a true wealth consciousness? Oh, that's a great question. So here's the thing that we are not ever going to outrun our own sense of identity. Your thoughts, feelings, behaviors, patterns, habits, all of that are offshoots of and are born from who you say that you are. So if you think that you are the product of, let's say, you know, my mom and dad grew up in the projects, I grew up in the projects. So there's like the horizon for you is if if I'm doing better than government cheese, I'm all right. Mm -hmm. But if you can shift your identity to understand or to at least consider, you don't have to be convinced, you don't have to agree, you don't even have to understand, but at least consider that you are an emanation of divine intelligence. If you think about the ways that people are born, do you know the likelihood, do you know the probability of that particular egg and that particular sperm meeting at this this particular time and for that to grow into, of of all the toxins and all the environmental dangers and risks that that happen, it just happened to be the exact formula that was 
for somebody like you to be born and then to make it through all 40 weeks of gestation and then to make it through all seven years of your infancy and childhood, eventually you become self-sustaining, no matter whether you had trauma or not, because I don't want to minimize that. Some people did have a lot of trauma. It's like, I don't know how I made it. But the I don't know how I made it, instead of it being a negative thing, should fill you with so much invincibility and pride and resourcefulness and ingenuity. It's like, you know what? You know what you're looking at when you look at me? A miracle. Right. <laughs> All right. You were bo- literally born a winner. You won the race. Right. <laughs> you already the won the race. Here. Everything else is just icing on the cake. And shifting that to that perspective and knowledge is a process because there are some things that we have to let go of. A lot of our labels and our perceived identities, as well as our personas that many of us created to be safe, we have to let that go. How do we let that go? Well, let me ask you this question. Mm. Do you notice? This ain't your show, Monica. Okay. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Let me ask the audience this question. You and I, let's you and I ask the question together. Do you notice anybody else doing the thing that you want to do? The answer is yes. Yes. And has anybody ever written a book, created a documentary, uh, published a course or, you know, a retreat or any kind of learning environment where they show, even if it's a memoir, even if it's an autobiography, where they talk about or show how they got to where they are? The answer is yes. So then the question isn't, why can't I do it? The question is, how can I do it? Mm-hmm. When you ask better questions, you'll get better answers. And you're asking, well, how do people shift? with Changing that identity or shifting to that kind of perspective is, is difficult. No, it isn't. What happens is that you're ignoring the years of steady, consistent, never-ending, unrelenting, habitual making, you know, messaging that went into saying you ain't shit or you're this or you only that or you can only hope for this and da da da. It's the same process. That same level of unrelenting, habitual making <laughs> messaging. You're going to have to do the same thing on the other, because all you were ever doing is managing your orientation anyways. You have all the discipline you're going to need, all the consistency you're going to need, all the attention, all the energy, all the money that you're ever going to need. The question is, how do you manage your orientation so that you enjoy better access to it? So break that down. Okay. A feminine person, a woman. Mm-hmm. is born with all the eggs she's ever going to have in that lifetime. But she may or not may not ever have children. Mm-hmm. So that depends on a lot of things. That depends on her how her life or what she wants for herself or whether she wants to be a mother or not, how many children she wants to have, et cetera, et cetera. So it's this it's the same concept. What I'm talking about is the same concept. You already have a particular storehouse of resources. Mm-hmm. Within you, within you, within you, you. Mm-hmm. for your attention, for your energy, for your discipline, for your focus, for your cons- all of that. Right. Mm-hmm. The question is, am I using my consistency to consistently tell myself I can't do something? That's one orientation. Or am I using my consistency to consistently tell myself, how can I do that? Where they do that at? 
Is that on Amazon? <laughs> can I go to school for it? Who do I know that can mentor me? Right. You start asking questions when you come from a place of possibility. You start asking questions that would generate that possibility. Your subconscious does not know the difference. Mm-hmm. If you ask your subconscious, what's wrong with me? Why can't I ever get what I want? Your subconscious is like, hold on, let me get the answer to that. And it'll continue to give you tragedy after tragedy, inconvenience after inconvenience (laughs) to support the theory of why doesn't anything work out for me? I remember years ago, because I have these visions and I was in a moment of my life where I was like, why me, God? Just all the childhood trauma, all the things. And Jesus came to me and said, why not you? Well, God came to me and said, why not you? Who are you that you can't suffer these things? Mm. You're suffering these things. And now what? What are you going to do with it? Thank you for listening to Black Women Amplified. We hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to subscribe and log on to BlackWomenAmplified.com for more information. Keep shining. Keep shining.